Thanks, John. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for the invitation to come along and share with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, could I encourage you to open it to 1 Samuel, chapter 19. 1 Samuel, chapter 19. Um, it's always good to come down to Braggstown. Uh, I've been here the past few summers. We, uh, it's always a joy to send some of our Baptist youth teams down to Braggstown in the summer. So thank you for your hospitality uh, towards them and for the invitation to come and share with you this morning from 1 Samuel. Chapter 19, if you're a note-taker, call this uh, sermon The Unstoppable Purposes of God. Okay, The Unstoppable Purposes of God. I think we see really clearly in this passage, in this chapter, uh, that God's plans and purposes for our world will always be met because His plans and His purposes are unstoppable. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this uh, passage together. Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to have it um, for us, inspired by your spirit, preserved for our benefit. Thank you, Father, that your word um, will challenge us, it can rebuke us, and it can ultimately inform us about what you are like and transform us into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, as we come to this passage in 1 Samuel 19, and as we seek to study it, to understand it, may you inform our minds and ultimately warm our affections towards your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose great name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you would say that you have an addictive personality. I wonder would you say you have an addictive personality. For some of you, the answer might be yes. You feel like you do have an addictive personality. Maybe that expresses itself in uh, your addictions to things like coffee, maybe, or shopping. Um, Or maybe if you're a little bit more adventurous, maybe you feel addicted to the gym. Probably not many of us feel addicted to the gym. I probably do have a little bit of an addictive personality. And back when I arrived at school uh, a number of years ago and uh, university, I had a a particular addiction to a video game. It's a game that some of you might have heard of. Uh, It's a game called Football Manager. Okay, Football Manager. If you're a football fan, you might have heard of Football Manager. Uh, If you're not a football fan, you might have seen others. Maybe your children or grandchildren play football games on uh, the video, uh, PlayStation or Xbox, whatever the case may be. But Football Manager is kind of different to some of the other Uh, video games that you might see Uh, you don't control the players actually in football manager you are the manager and so pretty much you pick the team and you give this little team talk and that's really about it to be fair that's all you do my parents never really understood why I like this game they said it seems really boring you just kind of click and I was trying to tell them no it's tactics you know and um, I love football manager but I I was also really really good at football manager Um, but the reason I was really good at football manager was because there was someone else in my class who actually taught me how to hack into the operating system of Football Manager so that you could always fix the result of every game that you played, okay? So it didn't matter what I did, didn't matter what team I picked, didn't matter what choices the little individual players made on the pitch, my team would always win 2-1, okay? They'd always win 2-1. And that was my secret to getting my hometown, Balamini United, to the Champions League final, okay? Because I had hacked into the operating system. And so the outcome was always fixed. It was always fixed. And so as you think about my relationship with Football Manager, it kind of reminds me of what we're reminded of in 1 Samuel 19. It kind of reminds me of God's relationship with our world. Uh, We live in a world where God uh, runs our world and the outcomes in that sense are fixed. His plans and his purposes, you could say, are unstoppable. What he has decreed to happen in our world will happen in our world. Because we live in a world where we will see the unstoppable plans and purposes of God. And I think we see that really clearly as we come to a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 19. And perhaps you're asking, as we come to this passage, what's happening in 1 Samuel? We're diving right into the middle of an Old Testament book. 
Well, the book of 1 Samuel really centers us um, thinking about the people of Israel. The Old Testament people of Israel, who I'm sure you're aware, were the covenant people of God. They were the people that entered into this covenant relationship with God. Uh, God said that I will be your God, you will be my people. And so they exchanged almost these covenant vows with one another. Um, God said, I will be faithful to you, and in return, you must be faithful to me. You must live with me as your God. You must abide by the law that I've given to you. And you must almost act as this representative of what life under my kingship is like to all the other nations. And you might recall, as you read through the Old Testament, Israel, whilst that's the call that they've been given, uh, they're not very good at living in covenant with God. God is faithful to them, but they are continually unfaithful to him. In fact, you could really sum it up with the last line of the book of Judges, which comes just before 1 Samuel, which really sets the scene, doesn't it? It says, in that day, Israel had no king, and everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. That's a little snapshot into what life in Israel was like as you come to 1 Samuel. And uh, so much so that as the, the, the chapters of 1 Samuel unfold, we see that, that Israel want to be so like the other nations that they actually want a king, don't they? God had previously had them ruled by a series of judges, but the people of Israel say, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations. Quite ironic because they were called to be unlike the other nations, to be distinct from the nations. But they say, we want to be like the other nations, so we want a king. And so they appoint for themselves a king, someone called Saul. And you might recall the early chapters of Saul's reign. Here's a guy who seems like he's got bags of potential, bags of ability, someone who you would probably naturally look at and say, He's a leader. He's someone we would like to be led by. Probably a charismatic guy. Ticks a lot of boxes. Looks the part. But what becomes abundantly clear as you read through Saul's reign is that whilst he might have bags of ability, there are some major character flaws, aren't there? There are some real red flags to the point where we get to chapter 19 that's going to really reach a climax. And actually as we come to chapter 19, we see that Saul is becoming increasingly infuriated with another individual to whom we've been introduced in the book of 1 Samuel, someone called David. In fact, not only is uh, Saul someone who is angry at David, it's almost as if at this point Saul is fearful of David. You kind of see that language in chapter 19 in a couple of verses, verse 12, verse 15, verse 28. It speaks as if Saul is fearful of David. And actually, the character flaws that we've seen expressed in Saul's life are going to reach a climax in chapter 19 where Saul gets so bitter, so angry towards David that what's he going to do? He's going to attempt to have him murdered. And what you actually see in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel is four murder attempts by Saul to try and kill David. Now you and I hear that and we think, that's terrible. How far Saul has fallen, he's now trying to kill another human being. That's awful and you would be right. But actually, it's even worse than we might immediately realize. You say, how so? Well, as we read 1 Samuel and as we come to chapter 19, we as the readers of 1 Samuel know something that the other characters within the story don't yet know. We know it as we read 1 Samuel. Saul knows it. But barely anyone else knows it. And it's this. That David is actually the individual who God has appointed to be the next king of Israel. Isn't he? You might recall as you read chapter 13 of 1 Samuel that after one of Saul's latest moral feelings, God's judgment against him was to say that the dynasty will be stripped from you, Saul. In other words, Saul, it will not be your sons who inherit the throne in Israel. It's going to be someone else. It's going to be David. His lineage will now take the throne in Israel. You're judged. You're gone. And it's in light of that, what does Saul do? He says, well, no, I, I want the throne. 
I want the power. God, you've said that David's going to be the next king, but I challenge your word. I challenge your plans. I challenge your purposes. I want to remain on the throne. And so he attempts to have David murdered. Doesn't that add some depth, some significance to what Saul's doing in chapter 19 by trying to have David murdered? He's not just trying to avenge innocent blood. That's bad enough. He's trying to stop the stated plans and purposes that God has already revealed. He's trying to thwart the plans of God, the purposes of God. And so what you really have in chapter 19 is almost this standoff. It's like this battle of wills. God's will against the will of King Saul. God's will, the sustainer and creator of all things, against the will of King Saul, perhaps one of the most powerful men on the planet. And so as you come to chapter 19 and you see this clash of wills, this clash of desires, the question is this, who will win? Who will win? Whose will will prevail? And of course the answer, we know, don't we? It's God's will. God will prevail. His plans will prevail, not the will of any king, in this world. No, God's plans will prevail. Why? Because God's plans are unstoppable. These are the unstoppable plans and purposes of God. The outcome with this God is always fixed. His will will always come to pass. And so what I'd love you to see in in 1 Samuel are really the four ways in which we see God's unstoppable purposes come to fruition, both in this chapter, but also ways in which we can see God's unstoppable plans and purposes come to fruition also in our world, because God's plans and purposes aren't just unstoppable in 1 Samuel 19, they're also unstoppable in 2023, where we live today. So let's look at them together. Let's notice the first one, and the first way in which God accomplishes his unstoppable purposes. And it's this, in verse 1 to 7, God accomplishes his unstoppable purposes through subtle irony. God accomplishes his unstoppable purposes through subtle irony. Irony. This is the first murder attempt in verse 1 to 7 that we see from Saul against David. And let's look at it together. We're kind of introduced into Saul's staff meeting, if you will. And it says this. Look at verse 1. It says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David. So here we go. Uh, we're introduced into this little staff meeting. Uh, Saul kind of gets his servants together. And uh, one of them is Jonathan, his own son. And he says, Here's the plan. I'm going to kill David. We need to get rid of him. And we're told here that Jonathan is friendly with David, and so he kind of intervenes to try and stop this from taking place. Let's watch it unfold from verse 2. And warned him, My father, Saul, is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. This is what Jonathan said to David. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took his oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Verse 7, so Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. So you can see what happens in this little staff meeting. Saul says, I want to have David killed. Jonathan steps up as uh, Saul's, or as David's friend, and says, don't do this. Don't do this, Saul. Why? Because David has done nothing wrong. He has actually 
done things for you. He's defeated the Philistines. He's helped you. He's your aid. You can't do this. This is actually sinful against God, he says in verse 4. This obviously goes against the Ten Commandments that were given to Israel. It goes against other passages like Deuteronomy chapter 19, where God's people are told not to avenge the blood of innocent men. And so Jonathan speaks up for what is right and what is true and what is good. It's very easy to, to oversight that, isn't it? And to overlook that and, and to forget the significance of what Jonathan does here. And um, Jonathan speaks, yes, he is David's friend, but you mustn't forget he's also Saul's son. And so Jonathan speaks up against the most powerful man in the world, potentially a great cost to himself. And in that sense, Jonathan's a good example for you and I, isn't he? He speaks up for what is true and what is right and then what is good, even if it potentially comes at great cost to himself. And I wonder as you think about your life, where might that be God's call for you? As you think about living as one of God's people in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, where does standing up for what is true and what is right and what is good potentially come at great cost to you? Jonathan gives us the example of that's what living as God as your ultimate source of authority will ultimately look like. You stand up for what is true and what is good and what is right, even if it comes at great cost to yourself. And so this first murder attempt, it's definitely the, the mildest by far in this chapter. This first murder attempt by Saul to have David killed is ultimately foiled, isn't it? It gets nipped in the bud. And ironically, it gets nipped in the bud by his own son, Jonathan. And that's quite interesting, quite ironic, because what we're going to see later on in the third murder attempt is that murder attempt will also be foiled. And who will that one be foiled by? Not Jonathan, his son, but his daughter, Michael. It's almost like this irony in, in 1 Samuel chapter 19 that two out of the four murder attempts that Saul makes against David, two out of the four attempts that, that Saul makes to try and overthrow the plans and purposes of God, get thwarted, get stopped by who? Two of the people who are closest to him, his own son here in verses 1 to 7, and then later his own daughter, Michael. It's almost this irony in the text that Saul, as he tries to overthrow the plans and purposes of God, it's almost as if God is saying to him, Saul, your attempts to thwart my plans and purposes are so pathetic, so laughable, so futile, that I'm going to cause it to be that the very means through which that plan is overthrown are by means of the two people who are closest to you, your own son and your own daughter. It's like this irony to show you how meaningless and futile Saul's attempts to overthrow God's plans really are. And so it's the first way we see that, that God's plans are accomplished. His unstoppable plans are accomplished through, firstly, subtle irony. God causes it that his own children are the means through which his plans are foiled. But not just that. Notice the second way in which God accomplishes his unstoppable plans and purposes. God accomplishes his unstoppable plans and purposes through, secondly, seemingly fine margins. Seemingly fine margins. Read with me from verse 8 through to 10. Here's where we see the second murder attempt from Saul against King David. Uh, once, war, once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night David made good his escape. Well, if the first murder attempt in verse 1 to 7 wasn't exciting enough for you, uh, surely this one will do it, the second one in verse 8 to 10. Um, we're told once again David records a great victory over the Philistines. Of course, the Philistines were the great enemy of God's people, the great enemy of Israel 
This comes in the heels, remember, of chapter 17, where another great victory against the Philistines was, was made by David when he defeats Goliath. And so once again, David records another great victory over the Philistines, whatever that means. And so you would think that Saul would be pleased, wouldn't you? The king of Israel? You think Saul would be thrilled with David that, that he actually won a great victory on his behalf for his people? But such is the sinful nature of Saul's heart that all that David's victory goes to do is to increase his bitterness and his anger and his resentment to the degree that, what does he do? He pins David up against the wall and leashes a spear at him. And we don't know exactly how this looked or what this appeared to be, but it seems from the text that David just, his instincts must have made him to, to move and kind of react and the spear manages to miss him and then he manages to move off and run away. And it's probably one of those instances that if you were in the room and you were to watch this unfold, you would say something like, wow, that was a close call. That spear almost hit David. That was very, very close, wasn't it? And of course, the reminder here is that what might seem like a close call or a touch and go moment for you and I as humans is actually anything but when it comes to God. I wonder if I was to ask you the question, was there ever really any risk or any danger of David being hit by the spear and being killed? Is there really any danger of that happening? The answer is actually no, sure is not. Why? Because God has already told us in chapter 13 that David will be the next king and God's promises and plans will always come to fruition. And so even though from our perspective of humans, this seems like a close call or a fine margin, the reality is it's nothing more than God's everyday act of providence. And so even though it might appear to you and I to be a close call or a fine margin, God's providence and sovereignty runs so deep in his world, he's got it so finely tuned that even what we might define as close calls or fine margins is nothing more than everyday acts of his providence. Isn't it good to know that God's providence runs that deep? Have you experienced in your life something which you think is a close call? You're driving down the, the motorway, 70 miles per hour, whatever the case may be, someone pulls out in front of you, And you've missed them by what feels like millimeters. And you think, oh my goodness, what a close call. I was so lucky. (laughs) Or you pass an exam or fail an exam by one mark. And you think, wow, my whole life, the whole trajectory of my life could be completely different. Had I passed that or failed that exam by one mark, if it was one mark better or one mark worse, how lucky slash unlucky. That's what we say from our perspective. God says, no, my providence runs so deep. I have so finely tuned my universe that my plans and purposes will always come to fruition. Even if from your perspective, it seems like close calls or fine margins. No, with this God, there is no margin of error. That's how deep his providence runs. He's got his universe so finely tuned that his unstoppable purposes will come to fruition, even if it seems from your perspective and mine that it happens by a hair's breath. Because God will accomplish his unstoppable purposes. Doesn't that encourage you as you think about your life that God's sovereignty and God's providence runs this deep? That that God is not just sovereign over the big things of your life, where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, what job you're going to work. God is even sovereign over the small, minute details of your life. Who you sit beside on the bus tomorrow. The person who just happens to live beside you. These are not random. These are not coincidences. These are just other expressions of God's great providence in our world. And so we should expect to have good conversations that almost seem too good to be true, shouldn't we? We should expect the people that we talk to to perhaps just be the very individual who needs to hear a word of encouragement that we are able to bring. Why? Because we serve a providential sovereign God who is unfolding his unstoppable purposes in our world and he is so sovereign, so providential that it even covers the small minutia of our lives. 
That's why he finally tuned his God out universe. That's why we can go forward with confidence as God's people. Because God will bring about his unstoppable purposes. Firstly, in this passage, through subtle irony. Secondly, in this passage, through seemingly fine margins. Thirdly, though, God will accomplish his unstoppable purposes through providential circumstances. Through providential circumstances. Murder attempt number one failed as he tried the, the staff meeting, King Saul. Murder attempt number two, throwing the spear in David's direction, failed. And so you might think after those first two failed attempts to murder David that, that maybe Saul needs to be a little bit more cute. Maybe he needs something a little bit more savvy. And that's what he attempts now in this third murder attempt in verse 11 to 17. Let's read it together from verse 11. It says this, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him. If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it in the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, He is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to David and told them, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the man entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away that he escaped? Michael told him, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? So here's the third murder attempt, and this is something that you might uh, be more inclined to see in some sort of James Bond or Jason Bourne film. Um, But David at this point, he's in his house, and Saul in this third murder attempt, trying to be a little bit more cute, a little bit more tactical, What does he do? He sends a number of spies towards David's house. And one spy in particular, Saul probably thinks, is his greatest asset. Who is it? His own daughter, Michael, who just happens to be David's wife. You might think, what a brilliant spy to have on board. Here's someone who can be Saul's eyes and ears, someone who can be Saul's inside woman. And so what does he do? Well, he thinks that that Michael will be his kind of inner woman who can be the eyes and ears and Instead of going along with a plan, what does Michael do? She does what her brother Jonathan did, and she pursues not loyalty to her father, but ultimately she pursues what is good and what is right and what is true. And so she helps David escape out of the window. And she does that little thing that maybe you did when you were a teenager and you snuck out of the house. She made the bed look like it was filled with a body, where you kind of maybe you bunched pillows together. She puts goat's hair together in these pillows to make it look like David's in the bed. And then, of course, Saul comes and, and finds. Uh, that she's, he's been deceived by his own daughter. And you can see the question that he asks in verse 17. Why have you deceived me and let my enemy David go? And so the third murder attempt against the life of David, the third attempt to thwart the plans and purposes of God from King Saul have ultimately failed. And you know, what's interesting about this uh, little incident is that David would later reflect on this moment in, in Psalm 59 and as he thinks about this moment in Psalm 59 and as he thinks about his life being spared, what does he put it down to? He doesn't put it down to the quick thinking of his wife, Michael. He doesn't put it down to her uh, innovative ideas. No, actually he puts this down to the, the kind providence and steadfast love of God. David says, here's why my life was spared, because God was kind and God was loving and his providence runs deep, even to the degree that he can he can bring about people's actions and thoughts and manipulate their hearts to ultimately do what they should do in order to bring about his plans and purposes. 
he can cause someone like Michael to, to not have loyalty to her father, blind loyalty, but rather to have her affections warm towards what is right and what is good so that she helps David escape and thus helps bring to fruition the plans and the purposes of God. Again, this is how deep God's providence runs, that he works in the hearts and minds of people to bring about his plans and purposes for our world. And you might say to me, well, Matthew, does that mean that we're all just robots preconditioned to do what God wants us to do? And in one sense, I think the answer is no, because what we see in this text is that, that God even uses our sinful actions and our sinful deeds to still bring about his plans and purposes. God doesn't force us to sin. We sin out of our own sinful free will, but God can even use that in order to bring about his sovereign plans and purposes. Don't you see that in this passage? Michael actually kind of lies, doesn't she? She says something which isn't exactly true in verse 17 when, when Saul asks her, why did you do this? And she kind of applies, well, I had to do this because David probably would have killed me if I didn't. He's a violent man. Again, there's no indication in the text to say that this is true. But, but God even uses her sinful actions, which she does of her own sinful nature, to still bring about his ultimate plans and purposes for our world. And again, as you think about all the evil and all the sin that goes on in our world, and maybe the sin that's caught in your history, doesn't that encourage you? That God can use mistakes, failures, embarrassing details, and in many cases, as we look into our world today, outright atrocities and grand schemes of evil to still bring about his purposes. From our perspective, we think, how can he do it? But he does. Even something as horrible as the events in Turkey and Syria can still somehow serve the ultimate plans and purposes of God. But God's word says they do. And we have example after example after example of how that exactly is the case because God's purposes are unstoppable. He accomplishes it in this text through subtle irony, through seemingly fine margins, through providential circumstances. Fourthly and finally then, God accomplishes his unstoppable purposes through spectacular intervention. God accomplishes his unstoppable purposes through spectacular intervention, verse 18 to 24. Murder attempt number one, the little staff meeting at the start of the chapter, failed. Murder attempt number two, pin David against the wall, threw a spear at him, failed. Murder attempt number three, send spies to his house, one of which is Saul's own daughter, Michael, failed. Now we have the fourth and final murder attempt in verse 18 to 24, and you could probably say that within this fourth murder attempt are actually four murder attempts, but let's watch it unfold from verse 18. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there, and word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and so he sent some more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent uh, men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Siku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul himself went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came upon even him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence, and he lay uh, that way all day and that night. And this is what the people say, is Saul also among the prophets. So what's happening here? Well, David, keenly aware at this point that Saul is trying to have him murdered. What does he do? He flees to Samuel. 
Uh, Samuel, you might recall, is almost like his mentor. He is the person who's giving spiritual oversight in Israel. He's almost like the prophet who speaks on behalf of God throughout this book, and he even gives wisdom to the kings in 1 Samuel. And so Saul finally hears that David has fled to this place, Naoth at Ramah, where Samuel is. And so what does Saul do? Well, as you would expect, he sends a group of messengers to go and try and go to find David with Samuel and to have him killed. And so he sends the first group in verse 20. You can see that ultimately fails. And then since that fails, what does Saul do? He sends another group of messengers to David to try and kill him in verse 21. And well, that fails. And so what does he do? Verse 22, he sends another group of messengers to have David killed. Once again, it fails. And so he thinks, well, if you want to get a job done right, you've got to do it yourself. And so he himself then goes to try and find David to have him murdered. And that also fails. And the thing that probably, the question that gets raised in our mind as we read this text is we, we kind of get confused. We go, how did this fail? All we're told is that as they go to try and find David, they start prophesying. It's hard to quite know what's happening here, what the text means when it says the messengers and Saul, every time they go to capture David, they end up prophesying. Um, commentators seem a little bit split in what's happening here. Some people think that it's not the spirit of God, but a spirit from God or some sort of other spirit that's overtaking them. Others think that perhaps it is prophesying as we would know it, that, that it's this irony again that even as they try and thwart the plans and purposes of God, Saul and his messengers, God overflows in them and causes them to say things, words of truth from God. I don't know which one's uh, more valid or more likely. But let's not miss what is clear from what is unclear. What we can say with confidence is here we have, yet again, an example where God's plans and God's purposes were not thwarted in spite of the best intentions of men, even the most powerful men. Saul's attempts once again were foiled. And this time, a fourth time in this chapter, God intervenes and ensures that his plans and purposes are met. But on this occasion, he does so through spectacular intervention. In all the previous instances in this passage, it's been, we've seen God bring about his plans and purposes through kind of subtle, circumstantial, providential means. Here in this last chapter, we see that God will still accomplish his plans and purposes if he needs to, through spectacular intervention. He can flex his muscles and just spectacularly intervene into a particular situation, into a particular story. If that's what he needs to do in order to bring about his unstoppable plans and purposes for our world, that's exactly what he will do. Do they? Because God's plans and purposes are fixed and they are unstoppable. It's this other way of reminding us once again that he is God and that we are not. That he is God and even the powerful kings and queens of our world are not. Even someone as great as King Saul is not. Even he cannot pl- try and play gods. Because you read through 1 Samuel and you're introduced to King Saul. As a Bible reader, you think this guy's impressive. In fact, you might even be inclined to ask, is this the Messiah? Is this the person that we've been waiting for to come and rescue and redeem Israel? But by now, we're left under no illusions that Saul is not the guy. And even in Saul, one of the most powerful men in the universe, even his attempts to overthrow God's plans and purposes are laughable. And in fact, I think the author here is trying to draw a parallel with Saul's earlier life to try and show you how much of a parody of his former self Saul now ultimately is. These are some observations from from Tim Chester, which are really helpful. But we notice here in in chapter 19, where Saul's at his lowest point, Saul's life here actually mimics, it echoes his life earlier in 1 Samuel, where he does the exact same things. But this time, there's a dark twist at the end. Don't know if you notice this, but here in, in chapter 19, verse 22, what do we read? We read that Saul comes to Ramah. 
That exact same thing happened, we're told, back in chapter 9, when Saul was at the peak of his powers. In chapter 9, verse 6, we read, Saul came to Ramah. It's like the same thing being communicated to you. And as this story unfolds in chapter 19, it follows the same path that the story did earlier in chapter 9, when Saul was at the peak of his powers. Here in chapter 19, verse 22, we're told that Saul comes to a well and asks for directions to find Samuel. That sounds familiar because it happened back in chapter 9. Verse 11, Saul came to a well and asked for directions to find Samuel. Here in verse 23 of chapter 19, we're told that Saul prophesies with a group of prophets. Again, that happened back in chapter 5, or back in chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, when Saul was in his heyday. Here, people joke and ask, is Saul one of the prophets? That's the exact question they asked back in chapter 10. But then they were serious. Now in chapter 19, verse 24, to remind you as a reader that Saul's a parody of his former self, this time it's a joke. Back in chapter 10, it was a genuine question. Now they're joking. Back in chapter 11, the Spirit came upon Saul and invested him with authority. But here in this dark twist, this dark irony in chapter 19, the Spirit comes upon Saul and this time doesn't invest him with authority, but divests him of his clothes. So that he sits at the end of this chapter naked and ashamed and ultimately a parody of his former self. And so the author of 1 Samuel is setting up these parallels between the start of Saul's life and the end of Saul's life, showing you how the life at the start and end of his reign echo each other but now at the end of the sequence of events in chapter 19, we're left under no illusions that Saul's a parody of his former self and is, of course, not the one who's going to overthrow the plans and purposes of God because no one and nothing can. Because our God reigns. And no one and nothing can overthrow his unstoppable plans and purposes for our world. And this gets really real for you and I this morning as we think about our lives, doesn't it? that no headline that you read this week can somehow thwart the plans and purposes of God. No exam gone wrong this week can somehow thwart the plans and purposes of God. No medical result that you receive this week can somehow thwart the plans and purposes of God. No out-of-the-blue phone call that you might receive this week, which seems to change your world and flip it upside down, can somehow thwart the plans and purposes of God. Why? Because this God is sovereign. He is on his throne and he's on an unstoppable mission one which has already been decisively won at the cross, where we saw another servant of the Lord, not David, but Jesus, was also the victim of a murderous plot by another vicious and bloodthirsty king. On that occasion, not Saul, but Herod. And in that event, just like this event, God's purposes for the lives of his world and his people remained unstoppable because that is the story of the Old Testament. It's a story of the New Testament and it's a story of your life and mine God's purposes and plans will prevail. And so this week, as one of God's people, as you watch your life unfold, it's not like playing football manager or watching your favorite football team, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, nervous that everyone's going to make the right decisions so that the outcome will become favorable for you. No, your life as a Christian this week is like me playing football manager as a teenager where the outcome is fixed. You don't know how it's all going to pan out. You don't know what decisions are going to contribute to the end result. But you know the end result. Jesus wins. God will establish his kingdom. His people will prevail. And we will be on Jesus' side for all of eternity as we celebrate the new heavens and the new earth with all of God's people forevermore with the presence of sin banished. Why? Because we serve a sovereign Lord and his plans and purposes are unstoppable. Let me pray for us, and then I'll hand back over to John. 
Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for uh, this chapter in, in 1 Samuel, which reminds us of your sovereign uh, providence in our world. Father, forgive us for the times where we um, feel like we are on the throne or we feel like someone else is calling the shots in our world. Father, help us to have confidence in spite of what we see around us, in spite of what the headlines might indicate, that you are the king of all kings and you rule and reign over all the affairs of man. Lord, we thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, came to win a decisive victory at the cross on our behalf. Thank you that through him, we can have sins forgiven and we can be brought back into relationship with you. And we can have confidence that we are on the winning team because the victory was definitively won by your son on the cross. And we have a certain fixed future. And everything that we see around us, Father, none of it can detract from the certain future and the certain hope that we will enjoy forever and ever as we gather with all of God's people for all of eternity to celebrate the victory which you won on our behalf and the future that we will enjoy forevermore. In Jesus' great name we pray these things and God's people said, Amen.